Are you truly involved in the developer communities you work in and sell to? Are you seeing the value in the events that you are a part of? DevRelate.io can help. Developer and community relations is a service. We speak developer. Learn more at DevRelate.io or email us at info at DevRelate.io. I've been doing a lot of reflection lately and my mind has been in this place of philosophy and essentially integrate all the things and these great kind of existential questions of why are we here? What matters in life? What are we trying to optimize for? And one of the reoccurring themes through a lot of these conversations has been around how do we have safe conversations? How do we talk about the things that really need to be talked about and, and make progress with being able to see one another? And I think that's what it ultimately comes down to is I look at the culture war around us. And if I really listen to people, if I really listen to what they're saying, I hear a couple different things is one is people feel their identity, like the core of who they are as a human being, like my, my values about what matters in life, my values that, you know, uh, the, the hill that I'm willing to die on kind of thing of, of just a sense of being challenged at like a deep spiritual level, like people are like in survival mode at a significant degree. And it's this, this certain type of energy, this certain type of fire, this certain type of defensiveness. And then on top of that defensiveness is pride, essentially. I feel attacked. And at the same time, I'm trying to defend what are the things that I value? What are the things that are important to me? And my heart aches for those around me that feel attacked too. And what happens when we're in this defensive kind of mode? we go blind. We go blind in a very particular way. When we feel that defensiveness, we go blind in terms of cutting off our sense of empathy as an input. We turn everyone around us into objects in our narrative, and we don't see them anymore as people. We don't see them anymore from a perspective of, oh, you're a human too. How did you get to where you are? And we lose our ability to resolve that dissonance because we can't talk about these things that need to be talked about. And I feel like at the crux of these really hard conversations is like essentially these being able to have more philosophical depth to our conversations about these things that really matter and to be able to do it in a way that is not tied up in identity, essentially. If we created a shared language with a shared space that we could all participate in this, in conversations about the things that need to be said, I think the problem to solve is creating a shared language that is safe and that allows us to talk about all the things in that space of just being a human that need to be talked about, but in a way that is 
separate from the things that trigger identity defense. It's been like a thread through so many episodes. How do we have safe conversations? So just in, in thinking about that, what are the things that you feel like need to happen to enable that? What, what's in our way right now? Why is this so hard? I think you bring up a good point that that identity defense is a, a really strong driver here. It's possible that a lot of it is a side effect of online communication where it's easier to depersonalize the people you're talking to, especially if it's like Twitter or something where you, I mean, you're not even really seeing faces or anything. You're just, you know, yelling at concepts basically. And on top of that, there's certainly big parts of the population that are actually being attacked. And so their motivation is, you know, my right to exist. And, and like, I, I am literally un, like physically less safe right now than I used to be. And I mean, that it's really hard to get over that state of mind to come to a point where people can come together and say, let's all agree that we're all human beings and that we all have value and no one's born evil and start having conversation. So this idea that we need to create safety so that we can talk about the things that we need to talk about so we can have these difficult conversations, like all the things that you were just talking about for me, I find them expressed in like, this is the core of Virginia Satir's model for family therapy, which is you have to create a situation where people are safe so that they are able to acknowledge themselves, their own feelings, the other person, the other person's feelings without feeling like acknowledging the other person's feelings is an attack on themselves. And so when, when she talks about like, what is the purpose of being a human for her, it's growth. And that means growing our connection to ourselves, growing our connection to the people around us, growing our ability to be authentic and congruent in how we interact with the world. And so it's interesting to me that you're, you're discovering these things and you know, in thinking about these things, you're uncovering some ideas that are, like you were talking about before, pretty universal. You know, psychological safety and the human need to feel connected are, are fundamental to what it is to be a human. I think if we put it in those kind of languages of just like, what does it mean to be a human? And I, I realize, you know, you get into this realm of existential philosophy, but I feel like that's, that's the direction that the conversations need to be going in our era is down to a baseline level of, of kind of a new era of philosophy and philosophical discussion I could see easily coming out of, I mean, it already is, right? I mean, you're already seeing these patterns happen organically. The thing I think this is really cool about the engineering world is because our jobs are hard and complex and we benefit a lot from camaraderie in our industry from sharing the things that we learn, whether it's sharing code or sharing ideas or sharing our ideas at conferences, whatever. There's a sense of we all end up better in the end if we help each other out because software is hard and we're all going to learn more with that kind of ability to sort of find ways to connect with one another um, and have safe conversations, at least to the degree that we can collaborate and get things done with regard to our field. And I think the principles that have come out of that in terms of 
the culture that has come out of that, the software industry as a whole has its own mood over time or like a zeitgeist with a smaller bounded context than the entire globe. If you just, you know, take the engineering world and there's been some classic problems in the software industry that mirror some of the problems that we have in our organizations and mirror some of the problems that we have in our world. And so if we look at all these kind of different things going on as essentially the same pattern, the same form at different levels of abstraction, I can think of within the context of my organization, this in the framing as a war, if you think of war as a metaphor, as a mindset of being intention, uh, having this kind of undercurrent of contempt and putting someone else in this them group of enemies versus you are kind of looking for allies. So I, I think of this metaphor of war as this kind of identity defensive, I'm in a threat position, survival mode kind of way of seeing the world. And when I think about the management world versus the engineering world, we've had this undercurrent of tension for as long as software has existed, really. And there's, there's plenty of reasons for it. But, you know, in, in consulting, the main thing I keep finding is, ah, these people are blind to one another. You know, you talk to one set of people and they're playing a game that makes sense. They're optimizing for things that make sense. I tend to think of everything in terms of game theory these days. So it's like, what's the game of life I'm playing right now? You know? But then I talk to management and management's like, they're playing a different game. You see the world very differently. They're optimizing for different kinds of things. And, you know, when you try and share these concepts that are anchored in a particular frame, a lot of times the metaphors, the ideas really kind of get lost in translation. So you're, you're talking about how the people are disconnected from each other. And I can't help but think about how that sort of alienation, the workers from each other, is comorbid with capitalism, with the, the ways that we organize our work. And talking about how the managers work with a different set of rules is very true and I think highlights a deep structural inequality in the way we work. And I think you can't really get the sort of connection that you want under that system. Or if you can, is in some small sense, dismantling the system. You know, you can't get rid of the corporation, but you can change the way your team works and resist outside pressures to conform to some extent. Yeah, that just uh, brought up, I remember talking to Stephen Chirac, I don't remember which episode it was, about asset-based community development, ABCD, as a way of increasing cohesion between separate groups like and, and his example was like air traffic controllers and engineering that was supporting them but i would imagine i wonder if the same thing would work between developers and management or you know various groups within the company but it may work or it may not because you're right that the incentives of capitalism tend to drive those in other directions Interesting. So what I'm hearing you talk about in these things is is almost like think about different bounded contexts that have like a, a membrane, almost like a, a cell boundary. And you can zoom in and you you've got a finer granularity of of you know smaller little cells. And at each one of these boundaries, you can have dynamics of tension. And the things I hear you saying are in some contexts, 
that there's a dynamic that's baked into the rules of the interaction of sort of the, it's in the API layer <laughs> between those two services, if you will, our two functions, two capabilities that needs to be disrupted. Like the structure needs to be disrupted for things to get better. And in other cases, maybe that's not the case. So I'm curious, based on the kinds of things that you're saying, if you think structural change is necessary for flourishing or is there a way to iterate in small pieces or or is there something in particular as a constraint that needs to be broken? I can tell you what constraint I think needs to be broken, but you could probably guess. It's capitalism. I, I think that the, the kind of change you want, the kind of ways that you want to interact with the people you work with can't be achieved in the system and can only be achieved in workplace democracies and, and other egalitarian systems. Do you think it would be possible to, to do that within an organization that's still functioning within a larger capitalist society? To, to the extent that leadership uh, and more to the point, people with power within that organization are willing to act against the interests of the people who tell them what to do and to foster that sort of a thing. Yes, it can be done. And you remember when we talked to Chad Fowler, uh, one of the things that came up is the best managers seem to keep being able to build communities, you know, in their sphere of control that operate in a way that's very different to how corporations generally work. And it's because they have a combination of the power to do that and the will to do that. And that's rare. And that's framed, though, by a cultural expectation of the way leadership is supposed to act, the games that people are supposed to play. There's a whole set of expectations, and then those expectations are also codified into law, right? So you've got a legal system that is shaped a certain way that echoes a certain belief system about what life is about. How do you win at the game of life? It's sort of projected through the system of shapes abdi has got me thinking about like, you know, if I'm a software shaman, <laughs> what are the shapes I'm putting into everyone else's brains with the things I'm doing, you know? Yeah. And, and you'll notice that when, when the laws don't work the way they want them to, they change the rules. So that's why we have mandatory enforced arbitration clauses and contracts where you can't use the law anymore if they don't like the law. The other option to finding a unicorn manager who's willing to betray their bosses uh, on behalf of the workers is worker empowerment, join a union. So you, you were talking before about like this idea that we're disconnected from each other. How do we, you know, build, regain, grow those connections amongst ourselves, regardless of the external pressures that make this difficult being what they are? I think there's still work to be done here. So Virginia Satir has a model she calls the personal iceberg metaphor, which is an interesting combination of both representation theory and coherence therapy from psychotherapy. Uh, so from representation theory, we get the idea that there's a lot more to a person than what we can perceive about them, right? I see John, and I see like what he's doing. I don't see what he's thinking. So my representation of John includes the surface things, things that are above the waterline. You know, what he says, what he does, how he looks. What I don't see are all of the things below it. And most of John is below that line. His feelings, his feelings about his feelings, his goals, his values. That sort of hierarchical model of, of a person uh, built up on layers comes from uh, coherence therapy. It's called the hierarchical organization of constructs. And one of Virginia Satir's ideas is if you want to connect with a person more deeply, 
you need to be able to connect with them on layers that are below the waterline through building rapport, through sharing experiences, things like that. You need to foster or grow a deeper form of connection. And to the extent that you want to change something about the world around you, you have to be able to reach people at a level where that change is possible. So you can't change behavior without changing feelings, right? And so on. So if you want to change something, you have to be able to reach the level in that person through forming a connection with them that allows you to access the thing you want to talk to them about changing. And you also can't change it on their behalf. You have to convince them that it's a thing that they can change and, and, and so on. But it has to start by creating a level of connection with the people around you that allows you to have those dialogues. Hmm. So I'm thinking, you said, if you want to change behavior, you have to change feeling. And if you want to change feeling, you have to be able to have these conversations and be able to find ways to connect. And one of the things I've learned about connection is you don't necessarily have to agree with this other person. It's about making an effort to understand their worldview, how they got there, to go, okay, well, if I imagine my human Play-Doh going through their life experiences and coming to this conclusion in their head makes sense from their set of experiences than they ha- that they had, then how can I make sense of where this person is, is potentially at? I feel like if we can learn how to have conversations and not have agreement be the goal, that maybe, maybe that helps. Uh, like the goal is understanding versus agreement? Yeah, like being able to see see where someone else is coming from, seeing, trying to see through their eyes. Yeah, I, I think you're right that we don't need to agree about specific things to be able to engage in a dialogue. What we do have to have is the fundamental level of agreement between two people is that we're both people and we're both valuable, and we can honor that in the other person, even if we don't agree on anything. Yeah, that's a big key, because if you, if you can't see the humanity, then everything else you've built on top of that is just imaginary. If, if you can't do that, there, there's no point. So that's you know, why I don't like to engage with certain people on the internet, because they don't see the humanity in other people, and I don't have time for that. That's what I was talking about with the whole blindness thing, is I've come to realize that usually when people are on the attack, that on the inside, they feel like they're on the defensive and they're attacking outwardly and they're yelling at concepts. They're trying to be right with themselves because they're defending something that's important within themselves. And they defend their identity by taking this object, this concept that they feel better about denouncing for some reason or another. There's something they're guarding that makes it important to them to denounce that thing. They do it in defense of themselves and blindness, generally speaking. Another good thing to try to acknowledge is that when you disagree with someone, in, in most cases, there's much more that you agree about than that you don't, especially if you're working together in a society for mutual benefit, right? If you're on a team with someone and you're both working together and they want this meeting to happen on a Monday and I want it to happen on a Friday, you both agree on so much more. You agree that you ought to have the meeting. You agree that, you know, what the meeting should be about. You agree that having meetings is good. You agree that you want to work together. You agree about so much. And so trying to, f- starting by honoring all the stuff you do agree about and then looking at the, where the disagreement starts, it, it can be really helpful. 
Yeah, I I think that's way more important than we give it credit for. Like one of the things I learned from my life coach is whatever you focus on grows is the first principle. Whatever you focus on grows. And so if you think about it, if you spend your time focusing on all the stuff that really upsets you (laughs) and gets you thinking about all the reasons you and I are very different from one one another, I'm going to make a list of 10 reasons of how we're different because I don't really like you. And so you can't possibly be like me. Let me make a list of 10 things, right? Whatever is driving that, whatever you focus on grows. And so this tension that basically starts with an attack and then becomes defensive of like, Hey, why did you attack me? And then folks that feel and empathize with that person that's being attacked, then they jump in to be allies because they feel defensive too. And they're defending someone they have a connection with. And it's like, there's a first spark that starts a fire between these two sides that are both defending one another that are both defending their own identities and going blind at the same time. And they don't see one another and just the tension just keeps escalating. And it's like this schoolyard fight with children is sort of like what it looks like to me. And at the same time, I get why people are hurting. I get why the energy has to come out. And at the same time, how do you honor people, help people to be seen without also escalating the tension and feeding the cycle? It reminds me, I saw uh, screenshots from Twitter. It may have been faked. I don't know, but it looked plausible of someone who had specifically set out to respond with kindness to the people that were attacking them. And, you know, the, the first tweet in the stream was just some just vile insults and threats and horribleness. And the response was a very empathetic, wow, you know, you must be having a terrible day or, you know, what, what's going on with you that, you know, you feel like this or whatever. And like, like that immediately switched the response from the other person. They said, oh, yeah, well, I've just been having this really tough time with blah, blah, blah. And then they just went on to have a conversation about what was going on in this person's life. And you, you just saw all that vitriol just sort of evaporate. And I don't imagine that that's something that is going to succeed in every situation, but I wonder if it's something that could be deployed more widely by people who have the emotional energy to work through something like that with people that are attacking them. So one of the things that uh, Virginia Satir focuses on in her family therapy model is that for the therapist to be effective in facilitating the sort of change that the family wants, they have to keep in control of themselves first. They have to first focus on their own congruence and authenticity in the situation. Because if, if they can't, then they can't expect anyone else to. So if you're if you're in a position where you're trying to facilitate some sort of change at a level where, you know, identities and egos are being brought into play, you yourself need to maintain your own congruence, authenticity, maturity, ability to see beyond the immediate reactions, you know, visceral reactions that you have and so forth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, if nothing else, you're just bringing that energy to the group as they work together. They can see an example of someone who is operating that way and that can help influence the dynamics. I also just want to like be super clear that I'm saying if you want to facilitate change, not everyone should have to be a therapist all the time. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. If you don't feel like doing that today because you're sick of it, fine. Good for you. If you're actually trying to affect some sort of change in a situation and you want to do it effectively, I said effect twice, then here's what you ought to do to achieve your goal. So I'm not saying everyone has to have spoons all the time. But you are bringing something important. I mean, if I circle back to where we started is these safe conversations that there's an ingredient that makes the whole thing work, which is authenticity or maintaining congruence. I thought it was really interesting. You used a sort of geometric metaphor to describe alignment and being out of alignment. And it's about the parts being in harmony, the parts of the whole that makes up yourself being in harmony. Can you elaborate a little more on that? So, that uh, Virginia Satira defines congruence as a state of awareness, of acceptance of self, of openness that manifests basically as, well, so she's a very spiritual person. So what she says is it, it manifests as a harmonious flow of life energy through all of the levels of your person. And one way to interpret that is, you know, the, the most obvious thing that congruence might mean is that you say what you mean and you mean what you say, or you say what you feel and you feel what you say. But it also means that, you know, the different levels of, of your psyche that we talked about are in alignment with each other. You know, the way you feel is in alignment with your goals as a person for what you want to achieve through action in the world and so on. So it's a really a deep level of, of alignment within yourself and also the ability to open that up for other people to see it, if that makes sense. It sounds a little wooey. She can be wooey sometimes. That's a concept I've always really enjoyed because, uh, it, it, I mean, it, the, the first time I heard about it, it, it made so much sense to me that, you know, there can be parts of you that are disharmonious. Like you have goal A, which is a conflict with goal B. And so you have to look at the two of them and why, like, what's the difference between them and which one is the real thing and which one is and, and you know, do the work to resolve that within you because otherwise you're going to be behaving in two different yeah. contradictory ways. The, the other part to congruence that I think is really interesting is that. She talks a lot about how one of the ways we need to grow is to be able to access more of the possibilities that are available to us that we sometimes shut off due to rules that we've created for ourselves. For instance, you know, I can't speak up because I'll get in trouble, things like that. So being able to make use of all of the opportunities that are available to us is a form of congruence. What I'm hearing kind of as an undercurrent here, too, is an idea of acceptance of self and wholeness being the thing to optimize for. Yeah. The the main, her main goal is for each person to become more fully human is how she puts it. Okay. This is really interesting. I brought up this article, uh, becoming more fully human with Virginia Satir. I think there's just some really great wisdom that I wanted to read in one of these little passages in here. So Satir says, do you know what makes it possible for me to trust the unknown? And she says, because I've got eyes, ears, skin, I can talk, I can move, I can feel, and I can think. And that's not going to change when I go into a new context. I've got that. And then I give myself permission to say all my real yeses and nos, because I've got all those other possibilities, and then I can move anywhere. Why not? In other words, If you trust your own integrity, you trust your own resources to carry with you in new situations and those abilities to see and hear and think and feel and touch and move and speak. If we can trust in those things, we can be certain about ourself and our ability to be congruent with ourselves. 
then the ambiguity that normally paralyzes us and makes us so uncomfortable and it hard to deal with all of these things evaporate. How beautiful is that? Yeah, I really like that. That sense of being able to trust yourself to handle any situation. I would love to have that. (laughs) Sounds like I need some more congruence. The other thing I'm seeing, if I contrast philosophies from two different sides, I I read um, George Lakoff's book, uh, Metaphors We Live By. And it's one of those things that once you read, changes your life and everything forevermore, you'll look at as what are the underlying metaphors behind, you know, these methods of reasoning. And one of the things I see is a different paradigm around the definition of purity of this kind of what is the goal of a soul. On one hand, you've got this view of accepting our full self and and wholeness being like an additive process. So I think of like if I think of purity as a metaphor and I've got an additive type of dynamic. I'm trying to collect all the little fragments all there, stick them together, own my full self, love my full self, those kind of things. And then you've also got a metaphor that is like subtractive of, of here's me and I'm like a dirty window that needs to be cleaned off and the bugs need to be pulled out of me. And these parts of me that are ugly, I need to turn those off and shove them away and stuff. And my goal is to be more pure by subtracting all these things away from me that are impure, essentially. And you've essentially got an opposite paradigm, opposite way of seeing opposite philosophy about how you're trying to move as a soul. That's actually an interesting parallel with diversity, where if you think of like culture fit versus culture add, where it's like, well, if you fit in, then we can be a cohesive culture rather than let's add lots of different people and viewpoints and experiences and perspectives in order to make the a better whole rather than by excluding the things that will not make a better whole. That's a, it's a similar metaphor there. I like that. One of uh, her core beliefs, uh, I think I've said this before because I like it so much, uh, is that people connect on the basis of sameness and grow through our differences and that differences help us respect our own uniqueness more. Interesting. So we connect based on our sameness and grow based on our differences, which helps us have more greater respect for our individual uniqueness. Yes. Beautiful. It really is. And what you're talking about culture, ad, like that's when you bring new people that have new perspectives, new experiences, you grow as, as a team and as individuals through that shared interaction. I want to read another thing in this interview with Satir that I thought was really great as a metaphor for a human being with feelings. Let's think that the human being has a countless number of little jets, that there's a fountain inside, that there's a countless number of jets. And if our energy were free to flow and these jets were all open, that this would just be put us in this fantastic energy. But most or many of these jets are closed and we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that. And who's going to hate us if we do this or that and do something else. And so as a result, we end up living half lives. So it's all these rules, all this mental chatter about what we shouldn't do and how we shouldn't be. And then when we open those up, do you know what happens 
to a fountain when only some of the jets will let water out. Sometimes the water comes out in big gushes in some of them, and it's very uneven because the central pressure uh, to make the water come out is stopped by the holes that are stopped. And I believe that's our central place inside of us with this energy. So opening up all of these little holes, so to speak, which are our feelings and our possibilities, when we allow that to happen, when we allow that to flow, then we become in a totally different place because then we can have harmony moving and we can have that total force of energy of what's possible. That's all I've ever done with helping people is opening them up. I like that. I like the the idea that in some like either you're cutting off sources of energy or you're spending energy resisting whatever it is that's going on inside of you. And either way, you're losing out on power that you could have. So bringing this back to our original conversation about safety and how do we create these safe conversations? And if we think about this in terms of what is making people feel unsafe, what is making them feel shut down? If we think about this as people's little jets are getting turned off and there's things happening in the context that are making their little jets turn off. What are the things that are turning off our jets? Well, trauma will certainly do that. Stress will do that. I think there's, a, <laughs> I think the list of things that will do that is long. So what, what she talks about uh, a lot is that we learn these rules about how we're allowed to be, uh, what choices are available to us. And we learn these rules through the way we grow up, through our interactions with other people, with our parents. Traumas can cause us to form these rules to say, well, that's a thing I can never do again because of what happened to me. And the thing that she wants people to do is to be able to look at the rule and ask whether it's still helping you. Does this rule spark joy would be the mean way to say that. But, but seriously, to, to look at all of, all of the rules we've made for ourselves based on our past experiences and to ask whether they, we still need them today. What function they have for us today? And then if not, what can we do to come up with a new rule? Yeah, digging out those rules is so difficult because they're 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 such they underlie so like all the behaviors and the decisions and the feelings and the thoughts rather than being a part of them. So it, unless you're looking really hard, it's like, well, let's just that's just where where everything is. Like, well, how could I even change that? <laughs> Which is where a good therapist comes in. So Virginia Satir wrote a, a poem called "My Declaration of Self Esteem," and I just want to read a, a couple lines. She says, however I look and sound, whatever I say and do, and whatever I think and feel at a given moment in time is authentically me. If later some parts of how I look, sounded, thought, and felt turned out to be unfitting, I can discard that which is unfitting, keep the rest, and invent something new for that which I discarded. I can see, hear, feel, think, say, and do. I have the tools to survive, to be close to others, to be productive. And to make sense and order out of the world of people and things outside of me. I own me, and therefore I can engineer me. I am me, and I am okay. I like the emphasis on accepting the current state of things without judgment and without saying, well, I'm just this horrible person, I have all these terrible habits, and whatever. And yeah, saying, you know, like, this is where I am. At any point, I'm free to make choices that will bring me closer to where I would like to be and to discard the things that aren't serving me. But it's okay that if I'm not doing that right now. 
Yeah, and you can say, I want to, I want to do something different, but that doesn't mean that what you were doing before is bad. Yeah. Interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about just from a engineering your identity standpoint, you're basically taking a model of, I am this box that has some labels on it and taking your historical experiences and using that as proof that you are this way, as opposed to a model that is, I am this definition, this shape in this moment. And if in the next moment, I choose to be a different shape, that it's still me, I'm evolving and learning and defining my, my shape every day. And the past does not become proof of who I am right now. It's like a, a paradigm shift around continuous evolution of identity. It's like growth mindset applied to the self, not just to like whatever skills or, or whatever. Oh yeah. Also, she literally calls this the uh, growth. Uh, I don't know if she says mindset, but she makes a comparison between growth and I think she actually calls it hierarchy, but it's between growth and systems that limit growth. I think it's more than systems that limit growth in that, you know, from all the things we've talked about with the, the consequences of seeing the world this way, the, the pain that it causes. And this is more than I think about growth. It's, it's also a way for us to see one another and connect and not hold each other hostage in those identity frames either. All right, so we're getting to the end of the show where we normally do reflections. And even though this has been kind of rambly all over the place, don't really know where we're going because we're talking about whatever, we figured we'd do some reflections anyway. <laughs> reflections, what are some of the big takeaways through this discussion? I really like your description of additive versus subtractive models of wholeness and purity. And thinking about how getting to wholeness via like embracing your whole self versus getting to wholeness by shedding the evil parts of you or whatever is a really interesting model. And I, and I'll be obviously I lean towards the former as the way I would like to operate. Um, but thinking about how that frame, that metaphor is going to influence people's behavior is a really interesting one. One of the sort of meta ideas that has been implicit, I think, in this conversation uh, she's all about making uh, implicit things explicit, is that becoming your truest self, self-actualization, and whatever you want to call it, isn't about going out and acquiring things to make you more human. It's about discovering who you already are. You know, one of the things she says is that we're all born with all of the tools we need to be human. And so it's not so much thinking about well, I need to buy this self-help book, although they can be helpful. Obviously, therapy can be a great tool, but there are all ways for you to do a better job of focusing on your own growth and on acknowledging the possibilities that are already a part of you. We already have all the tools we need to be fully human. It's a pretty powerful statement. As I've been thinking about how to create safe conversations, all the arrows seem to lead back to a shift within the self and a shift in how we see others and acknowledge others in the world. 
and let others be who they are. Be who they are. You do you, I'll do me. Let's be kind humans. Let's try to see if we can listen and understand where another person's at. And if they're raging, what if we imagined those days when we've been raging and what it was we needed in those moments? And maybe we can give that to that other person. And in order to be able to do that, all we really need is the tools that we were born with to be fully human, right? What this comes back to, to me, is like looking at where we are and all these problems that we have in the world with culture and people being attacked and, you know, all the stuff going on right now, is that it all comes down to a choice that we can make in any moment. And it's a choice that we can only ever make for ourselves. I make my choice, you make your choice. It's all we can really ever do. Until we we can shift there of owning our own choices, think that it's just where you got to start is with yourself. Uh, She calls that transformation of being able to own uh, your choices the third birth. Although I don't exactly remember what the second one was. Interesting. I love all these philosophical discussions, even regardless of where they go. (laughs) It's always a pleasure talking with y'all. 